Welcome to How to Go to Work, the podcast that explores ways to get started. I'm also Lucy Clayton, and each week I'll be asking a guest to take us right back to the beginning. We'll be talking to people from all sorts of industries about how they began, how they chose their career or how it chose them, how they've met challenges or exploited chances, the times when they've been held back or inspired further. We know that even if you've had good support at home and in education, there are lots of things no one tells you about making the transition into the workplace. It's an almost universal rite of passage, and yet it's still shrouded in mystery. And a lot of this is simply because people can forget to talk about those early moments of their career once they reach the apex of it. So for young people, it's often hard to imagine what the journey looks like to the job of your dreams. So we're going to find out from the people who have been there and done all that. And today I'm talking to Molly Case. She's a writer, a spoken word artist and a nurse. In 2013, she achieved national recognition after performing her poem, Nursing the Nation at the Royal College of Nursing, a performance that's now been viewed over 400,000 times. She's named in the BBC's 100 Women list and her new book, How to Treat People, A Nurse at Work, is an intimate portrait of a profession defined by its relationship to life and death. I'm delighted to welcome you, Molly, to talk about how to go to work. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. <laughs> um, in the book, you plot your journey into nursing. But can we start by telling our listeners at the beginning, what did you want to be when you grew up? When I was little, I always wrote. I had um, a little den under my bed with fairy lights and my three-legged dog that I used to dress up. In. <laughs> How romantic. I know, it was lovely and had like a stale cake that I kind of kept for weeks on end and then <laughs> ate after dinner. Um, and it was in there that I would write kind of poetry and short stories, you know, by these fairy lights. And I always knew that I wanted to do something with that. Um I guess a bit abstractly, I I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be, I wanted to write books. I didn't know whether that would happen. And I didn't really have a plan B as it were, you know, a a lot of people say day job, if you're particularly pursuing a creative job, I knew I wanted to write. My dad was a journalist. So I thought perhaps that could be something Mm -hmm. for me. Um, My mum was a teacher, but I didn't want to pursue teaching because I wanted very uh, almost self-indulgently just to be by myself writing rather than sharing that wisdom with other people. (laughs) That's very honest of you. Yeah. Um, It's, that's, I mean, we'll come on to this, but is solitude important to you as a part of your writing process? I think that's a really good question because the stereotype of a writer is that we sit there with our beret and our French cigarettes, you know, <laughs> kind of in our in our locked writer's room. Um, and I guess growing up, probably the writers that I was reading, I thought that maybe was the case with their writer's desk and their solitude, as you say. Now at 31 years old and with the career that I've had so far, I actually think that's the opposite that a writer needs. And in my opinion, the the life experience that you have through meeting other people, through doing now the the profession that I'm in, in nursing, that for me is is the muse, is meeting other people Mm -hmm. and surrounding myself with different people as well as like-minded people. So I think, yes, solitude is important when you're working on a project. You know, you can't have your husband's PlayStation in the background (laughs) or, you know, things like that. But... um, in order to acquire the ideas and the inspiration, I think solitude for me is detrimental. That's really interesting, mm. particularly given that your your profession 
in nursing is the exact opposite of solitude. Mm. I mean, you can't really get more sort That's of right. intimate and bustling yes. and you know stressful yeah. Than, yeah. than that as a as a Turbulent. way to spend yeah. your days. Exactly. Um, okay, so what was your first ever paid gig growing up? So my first paid job was, I was 15 years old, which I'm pretty sure is possibly illegal. But it, it is, but I think we all did it. <laughs> um, Maybe I, it's only illegal now. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I always looked quite young as well, so it was probably super illegal. Um, but I, it was always instilled in me to, um, my parents were terribly supportive, but um, a good work ethic, really. Um, and apart from a paper round, which I was terrible at, and I, they kept complaining that I, because the papers I didn't like the feel of the papers um on my fingers so I I just didn't really deliver the papers <laughs> which is kind of my soul um bit of the job description um so I didn't do that for very long so I won't count that one um my first proper job was in a South African run restaurant in our local shopping center which was terribly exotic because mm-hmm. you know South African in Bromley amazing um and I was the, the the girl that was wrapping up the knives and forks, which actually is my party trick now. As soon as we go to Nando's, I wrap up everybody's knives and forks in the poshest origami kind oh, of way. I'd love to see that. It's not actually that good. But, but you can do it at speed. But I do it at speed. It's it's perfect. And for someone that didn't do very well in my maths GCSE, I feel like I get all the dimensions <laughs> right <laughs> of it. Um, so my job was for about six hours a day, um, taking hold of a very, very hot cutlery, making sure that it was completely dry and completely shiny and then wrapping it in this origami way and then the waiters um, would take it to the table. But the reason why that job was so brilliant, because it wasn't really the cutlery. <laughs> You're going to have to sell me on yeah, it. <laughs> it wasn't the cutlery, was um, genuinely meeting people from a completely different country um, and learning about South Africa. And I went on actually to write my first novel, which I then put in a drawer. I never, I never went for publishing with it, but it was an important step in my writing journey. My first novel was set in South Africa. Right. And I have no doubt that the people I met when I was 15, so kind of 16 years ago, um, you know, the baker from Pretoria and things like that, they're all people that were that featured in that book in some way. And so I have no doubt that that was a really formative job, mm. despite it looking on the surface like knives and forks. <laughs> and I think that is so that echoes everyone else that we've spoken to on this show saying exactly the same thing. It's almost the more basic the task mm. and the more outside of your own kind of sphere of influence up until Definitely. that point, the environment, then the more you learn. Mm. It's just that you can't necessarily isolate what the thing is you're learning at the time. And it definitely, definitely. isn't, as you say, being really good at knives before. No. Although nice that you still use that it skill. Yes. Nando's could use me as well. <laughs> I, I completely, completely agree with you on that. And I think what's so important about this podcast is exactly that little nugget that I think you're uncovering, which is because um, obviously we're meant to be imparting pearls of wisdom, which I'm not sure I have, but <laughs> when you summarize it like that, um, I completely agree that what you're doing at the time, what it might seem like a waste of time, might seem trivial, might seem boring, but you're not, through kind of osmosis and marinating, actually you don't necessarily realise how important it's been to you. And I think that's all the more essential to know when you get to the end of a Mm. long Saturday or a long evening shift. And if you do the maths, you probably haven't earned enough to make it seem completely like a, a great deal yeah but you mustn't ever I think feel like you're 
being a mug in that situation when actually all of the things that you mm. aren't seeing that you're learning along the way yeah. are going to kind of stay with you yes. and maybe as you say morph into something else mm. later on mm. it, it just can't be obvious at the same time no and I think there's a lot of people that I'm not a particularly chirpy person but as I get older I actually think I get less cynical and have become much more of a person that at the end of a day as you say um in order to get perspective or if I'm feeling particularly gloomy I had quite a bad day at work yesterday in fact and felt stressed by it it's sitting down or you know and thinking what did I get out of the day and even if it was bad stuff let me get my perspective on that and how am I going to move forward from that? And I think I used to be quite a catastrophizer and go, goodness me, this is horrendous. I'm never going to see through this. And I think also learning that things that have felt negative in the day, trying to find, I guess, the silver lining or, you know, just a way of working working forwards from it and finding the good within it or the productive that's something I'm learning as I get older rather than I think cat- catastrophizing it's easy to say but is is it can only do bad really yeah and sometimes it's as simple as just forcing yourself to shut that down yeah and yeah mm. and almost just you have to just press stop on yeah, it don't just you? be chirpy I love a bit of dental catastrophizing I have to say I'm just you know <laughs> I'm the same I'm it's the awful same. isn't it no, I think but you can just sometimes say actually that's enough yeah it can get you into a bit of a, a whirlpool of black thought well every worst case scenario is of Mm. course an option Mm. but it isn't going to equip you no to avoid it no i think and being and finding constructive ways of of taking your problem whatever whatever has happened forward okay well how can i work around that even when i've had even when i've um dealt with patient complaints um which must be unbelievably stressful like i can't even imagine yeah. what that must be yeah. like as a process because and, and again we talk about it in the book the act of being mm. complained about in it is super emotional mm. even before mm. you is. even know what the complaint is about it's a real yeah. personal mm. you can't take the personal out of a complaint situation no, it's that's so, right and I, but to then add another layer of the the sort of the the stress and mm. the complexity of what you do mm. i can't i just can't imagine what that must be like i think certainly in nursing though i think in some ways, it's it's easier, isn't it, than probably, um, you know, a complaint coming from a, an angry customer in a shop because it's very, very easy to empathise with that person who is disgruntled because right. they're coming from such a state of anxiety and vulnerability that, you know, it's very easy to simply say, I can see why they're feeling like that. And it's about empathy, which is obviously, you know, my job. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think, of course, patient complaints are awful. I mean, I don't, I'm lucky enough that I think... If you're a good communicator, which I am, I hope, um, you know, and you've explained to somebody all the the processes that are going to happen and you don't really get people complaining, but of course you get people that are disgruntled or mm-hmm. want to vent their frustrations. But I think, um, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but my goodness, communication is key, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And making sure that person feels listened to. Yeah. And defensiveness is the worst thing the in the worst world. worst possible response. Isn't Especially, it? as you say, if someone starts by feeling vulnerable anyway. Yeah, defense. I can't bear defensiveness. I want to punch it in the face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and not defend. <laughs> yes, no, I totally agree. Okay, so let's go back. So you're yeah. working, you're, you're, in, you're an expert in cutlery. Yes, I am. And where did you, tell me how you got from there to, to being in this room with me talking about what we're doing now. And as part okay. of that, tell me a bit about what you're doing at the moment okay. in nursing. Okay, so I was very much keen to be a writer, but didn't necessarily think that would 
kind of morph into a, a job. I assumed a journalism thing would come along or maybe I'd have to go into teaching. I mean, teaching is the most wonderful profession. But for me, as I said, I'm not a very good teacher. I don't really want to impart anything. I just want to sit there and do it myself. I just would be rubbish at it. Um, so I, I moseyed along at school, worked hard um, and carried on writing. Didn't have any other thoughts of, I'd like to be a scientist, I'd like to do this. Um, just carried on with my my kind of creativity um, and then found that university was offering creative writing courses, which I always thought, never that my writing was a, a dirty secret or something, but I didn't realise it could be an academic right. You know, a degree that I could, and that thrilled me that was so exciting that was the first time about 17 years old I thought gosh people are studying this because I assumed I'd have to do English literature which I did as well and I loved and I, I loved I absolutely adored doing that but what I really wanted to do was have time and space to write mm-hmm. and English literature is more of essay writing and things like that so when I saw that I could do a degree in creative writing and I saw the modules poetry what I can study poetry mm-hmm. for three years crazy um <laughs> that was thrilling to me so were I were you applied. guided into that decision by uh someone at school by a teacher or by a careers advisor or is that something that was very for creative writing yeah the opposite actually the university that I wanted to go to and the particular degree that I wanted to do was not a traditional university. Um, And I remember very much my English teacher saying that I should just study English literature. And I'm so pleased. And I'm I'm pretty sure it was my mum that said, rubbish, do do what you like. You know, her background was the arts. She'd been an actress. I'm so pleased that I simply went along to look at the university. It was everything I wanted it to be. It was stunning, countryside, cows. Loved, loved <laughs> it, you know, coming from London. I was like, Central oh, University cows. cows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I went on to study English literature and creative writing and spent three years in, in a castle, in towers. Like, it was a beautiful university. Three years to read, write, be creative drink read poetry I mean it sounds like heaven and then I did nursing which was the opposite <laughs> okay so tell me about that yeah. journey then because it really does sound I know like a mad thing to have I done I know so then whilst I was studying for my creative writing degree as many students need a, a day job um I was with my, my my now husband, my then boyfriend, and we were looking at the jobs that were available to us. He was doing um, like a PC job um, in a shop and I has I found two jobs and one was a telesales um, role and I liked the look of it because you got to wear one of those oh, Madonna headsets, Madonna headsets mm. or Britney Spears headsets yeah. and I thought, that's cool. <laughs> I, that, that is me. That is me. <laughs> Um, I want that job. That's the job for me. <laughs> so um, that was the one I was going to go for. And then the other one was down the road um, in a residential care home run by the council in a funny part of town, um, as far as I was aware. And it was looking after elderly people with dementia. I had never had any formal experience of care or of looking after people. My my own grandmother had lived into her 80s and was terribly independent. Um, so I, I never visited a grandparent in a care home. It was not something... Right. It wasn't on your radar at all. Not at all. Um, and Rob, my boyfriend, um, said, why don't you go for that one? It sounds a bit, a bit different, you know. And I thought, ooh, does it? So I applied for it and went along, got the position. And I always remember, I mean, it was about 10 years ago now or 11 years, the moment I walked in, I almost walked straight back out. And I will never forget, and when I speak to student nurses, um, 
I am very honest about that feeling mm. of being frightened because there's nothing to be frightened of that you felt frightened. These people, as I said, I'd never met somebody with an organic mental health condition like Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. And these to see these people who were terribly vulnerable, terribly fragile, a little bit loopy, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, uninhibited, doing things that were not things that were necessarily normal, Um I was really frightened yeah. and I wanted to leave. And I, I remember the, the kind of visceral feeling of wanting to leave. And in fact, the manager wasn't hugely pleasant. There were so many elements of that day and moments where I could have walked out and I didn't. But why didn't you, do you think? I think to be less profound, I didn't want to be impolite because right. <laughs> okay. I'm terribly British. Yes, yes. No, but it's, it's kind of what keeps you in the room. And, yeah, you it know, is. I think who we are I, um, now. <laughs> I would have felt that I'd let myself down. Right. I'm very much a person. I'm a, I'm a big risk taker um, in so many ways. And I didn't, I didn't want to feel like I'd let myself down. And I, I compare that to uh, the moment before I go on stage to perform a poem. I'm very very nervous and I still am 11 years later but I don't want to let myself down and it's only myself because nobody else would say shame on you for not doing it and so standing there I didn't necessarily know that this was going to be my career now but I knew that it was important and I knew that there was probably something for me to learn here and I didn't want to turn around and walk out okay so I stuck around and I think also importantly that thing about fear mm. and the the unknown and therefore there is something to learn here is really important mm. and actually when we start out in any career there is a certain amount of perhaps not in such an extreme way as you experienced it on that day mm. but there's a certain amount of that in any scenario where you haven't previously Definitely. encountered this set of circumstances these people this kind of what are we all here for Definitely. Um, and so it is important sometimes to just swallow that fear a little bit for the Always. for the purpose of Always. that day definitely and you'll know more tomorrow. I completely agree. And I don't like the saying, do something that scares you every day, because that sounds awful. Because, I mean, especially as a cardiac nurse nowadays, I don't think that's actually good for you. And I, but, but I understand the essence of that. And I, you know, for takeaways for, the, for this particular podcast, I think absolutely that don't be frightened necessarily of your own fear. Um you know, you, it, it's your own fear. It's manifested from yourself. And there's always something to gain, you know, as long as you instinctively feel that it, it's a good situation yes, to you're, be in. you're safe, obviously. We should yeah, say exactly. heavy caveats <laughs> yeah, exactly. as we send in a new generation of people. Oh, gosh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Heavy caveat, trust your instinct. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that you feel it's, it's the right thing to be doing. But I think um, even 10, 11 years later, I still get terribly nervous about performing or about certain things at work. And I don't necessarily think that's, been negative or detrimental to to progression we are in the care home and um i find that this job is like nothing i've ever done before um even to the point even the 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 specifics of it that i don't have a manager that's checking up on me necessarily i'm free to roam around this you know it wasn't a particularly glorious um residential care home it was run by the council but I even the the space that I was in um moving from the service users of the residents home to the living room there was something really autonomous and free about that which is seems so silly right. but I suppose you know going from cutlery sure or working that, in a shop or the yeah, other options there was something I guess about that and then 
of course, fundamentally, the people that I was I was helping to look after were these incredible people. So people, they were mainly over 80 years old um, that had these stories. So I've always been so interested in stories and hearing other people's stories. Um, and my dad, as I mentioned in my book, it, it was an older dad. He had us much later in life. So I've always been well adjusted to the older generation. Um, <laughs> but these people, I, I felt wow how privileged am I to hear where these people have come from and I learned a valuable lesson for nursing although maybe I didn't realize at the time which is this person is so much more than how they present to me right now in this moment because now this person's lost their memory and they're not how they necessarily were but when they're lucid or when their family comes along and they can offer insight into how they were how special and what you know I was being paid very little but it it didn't matter at all because I couldn't believe how incredibly valuable what I was learning from them was Um, and I I remember being conscious of that at the time it was very inspirational for me for writing poetry um, finding just these incredible stories with these people Um, and and stories that would so easily be lost I think is the sad truth isn't Mm -hmm. it that if someone isn't listening or if someone isn't doesn't have the time yes. to, as you say, their fractured narratives, they need teasing out sometimes Definitely. or they need time to be allowed yep. to kind of form in brains that aren't as quick as they were. Exactly. Or, and the idea that we, we might we not them. capture them, we miss them is, is heartbreaking. I know. And even time has passed now, obviously, a decade has passed. And I returned to that care home on the weekend when I did a little kind of nostalgic trip. And I thought those people are, are very likely long, longish gone now. And I will forever remember my time here with them and some of the poems that I penned kind of as inspiration. And I think how lucky I was to know those people and how respectful is that to to have that person in your memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do remember believing at the time something very formative is happening here. You sound like deeply mature in a way that's slightly frightening to me. That you like, maybe that's I'm just, just thinking of the equivalent back. things that I was doing yeah. at that age, and I definitely wasn't being oh. considered and sensitive about you know the about elderly people's stories. I was definitely much more gung ho and frankly selfish. Than I, that. I, I need an example of what you were up to. I'm not going to give them because I will come across so badly. I'm in sure contrast. I was doing ridiculous things, but I absolutely was. I'm sure, but. In fact, I was writing very deeply inadequate. No, oh no, that's not my intention. (laughs) No, I know, I know. No, but one of the things, and one of the things that's so obvious to me as a reader of your book, and I would have known this before reading it, but it's just, it has confirmed to me every aspect of how there is no, my skill set and my, uh, I guess, disposition is so the opposite of anyone who could do that. I, I mean, as it, and it's really interesting because I think in terms of the fit, in terms of knowing yourself well mm. enough to know what you are yeah. capable of doing yeah. and what you are not, yeah. um, it's quite important. And one of the most difficult things, one of the reasons we're doing this project is because at the very beginning of your career, you have to make quite big decisions about who yeah. it is you want to be That's right. in your full adult life. Some of those 
I mean, nothing can't be reversed, but it sometimes feels like you're making these forever decisions. Massive decisions. Based on not necessarily knowing yourself well enough. And so one of the things I think is really good to talk about is a an early experience that was as formative as that but could not have been yeah you could have just thought i hate everything about this and done something else but importantly if you hadn't tried it you wouldn't know that it was this window yes to a whole well to two other careers exactly and i don't think exactly like you said there i don't think whilst i'm saying gosh this was very formative for me at this moment in time yes it was but i think i think like you say that perhaps is is an element of hindsight. Of course. Because I didn't go on to do that. I went travelling and had a whale of time. I went into marketing for a bit. So I didn't suddenly go, I must be a nurse. (laughs) This is now me. Um, So I completely agree with you that, um, and being aware of what kind of disposition you have. The only thing I would say on that is that can sometimes be, so I was never a person that thought, um, I'm going to be a nurse. That is my calling. My sister was born and was a midwife, like as she was being born. You know, there's pictures of her around the house as a midwife. That's just, she was born like that. (laughs) It's very lucky, I think, if you have that very steely sense from early on. It's a gift, like brilliant. And I don't meet many people like that. And I think, um, so I don't know what adjectives you'd use to describe your own, but I am impatient. I'm moody. Um, (laughs) I... I'm a, yeah, I'm a bit selfish. I like being by myself. These are not the qualities I mean, of a I'm nurse. I'm not visualising Florence Nightingale as you listen. <laughs> Actually, she wasn't hugely no, pleasant. No, it's true. She was really tough. Wasn't she, she wasn't very nice. That's yeah. why she was good. Yeah, true. <laughs> efficient. Super <laughs> efficient. Yeah, true. Um, so I think the point of what I'm saying there is, firstly, don't let, don't let other people label you. That That's awful, isn't it? When other people go, oh, well, Molly's like this. And um, that you can surprise yourself. So trust trust your instincts and, you know, how you are and what feels right. But I think um, you can surprise yourself. I'm, I'm much more pleasant than I thought I was. <laughs> that's very reassuring. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, but what do you think are the qualities that make an excellent nurse mm. or an excellent potential nurse? Mm-hmm. And when you're looking, mm. you know, if I was coming to interview with you... <laughs> <laughs> Why is that funny? Because yeah. honestly, I can't even. I, I mean, it, I would just be so bad. But um, what what are you looking for? Do you mm. think in that? Mm. And you said at the beginning you know, that empathy is mm. your job, which mm. is such a perfect summary of it. Yeah. So, but that, again, that's quite hard to see in an interview, isn't it? Or how do you no, judge that? I think so. Even just the conversation we're having now and the non-verbal communication we're having with our eyes and our hands and things like that. I think for nursing. Um, I think nursing has changed a huge amount. Obviously, I've only been in the nursing profession for kind of almost five years. And I think what's so wonderful about the NHS and the healthcare profession is that it's people from all walks of life. And I mean that in terms of professionally, really. Obviously, it's a very diverse workforce um, anyway. But of course, you've got these incredible nurses that have done it for 40, 50 years and you meet them and they literally are Florence Nightingale, you know, um, and I mean that respectfully. They've just got the the incredible wealth of experience. But people come into the caring profession from fashion, you know, marketing, um, all sorts of... And I think that that is a great thing and that brings so much more to the role because all our role... I I always say, and it's a bit of a maybe... um, Whiffly waffly word to use, but I think nursing is an anthropological pursuit. It is literally a study of humans and how we live and how we die. Um, and the more experience you've had looking at humans and being around humans, course, the yeah. better you are. So I think 
empathy for sure, just simply flipping it on its head. And we do that hopefully in life anyway. How is how is that person feeling about that? How would that person feel who's from that background about that? I think um, listening, listening, I mean, just... I know I'm talking a lot, but um, that's, that's fine. That's what I want you to do. It? It really, John Cage's <laughs> six minutes of silence, whatever. Um, listening is so incredibly important and so therapeutic to people, much more than medical intervention, hugely. Touch, you know, learning how to, with consent, touch people, you know, yeah. um, in terms of the job, I think. Um, and obviously kindness, but I th- I do feel even in this funny old time, I think people are intrinsically kind and good. In that journey from those early experiences through to kind of making the decision to properly train as a nurse and go through that process, you did some volunteering and you kind of tested out a bunch of options. That's Tell right. me a bit about that, because I think that's yeah. such a useful way to decide whether a, a, an area or an industry mm. is of interest to mm, you. That's right. I think... Um, we had a friend, a close family friend, who was like a really cool paramedic. You know, all paramedics are cool because, you know, <laughs> you learn that quickly when you start working in healthcare. They have like bone drills that they do at the side of the road and like blood packs and these drugs that do these amazing things. But he was one that was on the motorbike. Like that's that just super cool. Super cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, I didn't get to go out on the motorbike, obviously, but um, I volunteered with the London Ambulance Service to get an idea as to whether you know blood and guts was for me really and right. it's funny that because I when I meet a lot um, when I meet people that are not in the caring profession they say oh I don't know how you I don't know why they're northern <laughs> I don't know why you um all northern yeah, well, <laughs> how you deal with blood um and actually I agree I was a person that did think oh gosh but when you when you actually are, are with blood you know uh, yourself it, it's fine but so I went out with the London Ambulance Service for I think it was a couple of weeks maybe three weeks um in the in the truck in the van with the blue lights which was very exciting and um whilst I'd had that experience in the care home looking after people that was obviously a, a very quiet and calm really place to work you know obviously there were, there were certain things that happened but it's not the the rush and the emergency setting of of the London Ambulance Service and I think having insight into that profession um taught me so many things that I that I definitely I've learned with hindsight in the sense that um things that I like and don't like about the job that I do now so for instance um I have to know what happened to the patient right. to the person I have to know the end of the story that for me is awful they you know the paramedics do this incredible job of triaging this very acutely unwell person get them to the right place and then that's it that's it i mean they can follow it up but there's so many people well and also they're out on the next call so that's i've never even thought about that so for for a learning point for my for my job now i knew that a paramedic wasn't for me (laughs) no i mean i have to know what happens for someone who loves storytelling yeah you you definitely couldn't not know no have to know um but i think volunteering in general is it's almost this um not commitment free because i'm not saying you rock up there with you know hey no commitments (laughs) you know no strings but it's this way of there's no there's no real pressure to to take on a job at the end of it um it's this little vignette of time isn't it where you can kind of dabble and see what learn about yourself see what what you enjoy doing what you really don't enjoy doing and I've done that a few times I when I was um at the care home in the southwest of the country I also volunteered in a homeless shelter very simple job a bit like like you say with the cutlery you know serving people food 
and meeting these incredible people. And that's what it's about. I think nowadays in the, you know, in, in your working life, we, we call it networking, don't we? Which yeah. sounds very shiny. Such a horrible word. Yeah. yeah. I never, I didn't used to know what it made. It sounds like you plug into something, doesn't it? It just, I, I hate the word because it sounds yeah. so transactional mm. and I was, and as a consequence of hating the word so much, I never, ever did it in my 20s mm. while everyone was madly networking, networking. particularly in, and I was in advertising, yeah. so it was like hideous. Networking. It was just a networking fest, which yes. I was very much on the outskirts. I was just imagine just you're sort sitting of there rocking there in your alone, chair. <laughs> uh, very deliberately isolated. Yeah. Um, and now, as a more mature person, mm. I understand that actually it's just the word I hate. It's just the word. And Actually, what it really means is connecting people, not who can be useful, because mm. I think that's the problem. That's the transactional bit. Yeah. We talk about it in the book, and it does sound a little, perhaps a little bit cuddly mm. as, an, as a deliberate alternative to a horrible word like networking, yeah. where if you think of it first as friendship, so it's not about having total coverage yeah. of anyone in your area no. that, you know, if you know everyone in accountancy, it's not going to help you. But if, so my network now mm. is built up of people who work in radically different industries yes. to me, but whose judgment I trust. Exactly. And I think if you build a network based on that, what you have, and again, it probably doesn't kick in until much later on, mm. what you have when you want to kind of Draw. leverage that mm. network you have so many more skills available Absolutely. to you. If all you've done is make sure you know everyone in your industry, yeah. then I don't know what you can really leverage person, from that later. It? It's sort of just a bit claustrophobic. It, and people, again, people surprise you. So people within your network, people that you've met along the way, you don't realise how, and again, it's hard not to use the word useful, but I think that, you know, it's not necessarily a negative no. way, but I know it, it, it infers the transactional element of, of networking. Um people surprise you with what opportunities can come, come your way through things that you wouldn't have necessarily pursued and the people that you've met. And I think um, I think exactly that. It's not, it, it's the word. It's the word. The word is gross. But the actual people that you meet along the way and that you kind of store in your, in your yeah. you know. You're not acquiring people. Yeah. You are just, you're, you're making a really honest relationship. human relationship. Yeah. And if you do that, then yeah. actually it's just a much better place to be. Yeah. And I don't consider in my network now there isn't anyone that I would sort of put on the A-list who I wouldn't say that they were a friend first yeah I think actually that's, if I was being great. really yeah, brutal me about too. it me too actually I think when I was inviting people to um, the launch of my book it was a, a real eclectic mix of people and that's not because I'm you know super highbrow and, but because of the people that I had met along the way so I had you know people from the nursing profession writing um, through my volunteering experiences um, and, and then when I looked around the room I was still quite nervous but I looked around and I thought this is really special this kind of strange pack of cards that is yeah. all you know a real um mix of funny, funny people we all are, yeah and i think i even said that in my speech i was like look at all of you <laughs> funny lot you know which is probably not very flattering. that's why they all left it's <laughs> a kind of collection though isn't it i think yeah. if you can think of it less as a network and more as a collection yeah. of people who you who you value their input mm, definitely then that's perhaps a better way to count yes it. so I finished working at the care home and I completed my degree and that was all brilliant and I went traveling for almost a year which was just a time that you almost never get back once you once you start working which I'm sure isn't true you can always take take a break but it was a lovely um, break from study and from work 
And I missed the caring profession. I missed the people that I'd been looking after. I missed the very simple feeling of knowing that I was doing a good job. I very quickly realised that the job wasn't rocket science. It wasn't the world's most impossible job. It was this selfish selflessness that I was making people's lives a little bit better. And I really missed that feeling. So, of course, I got a job in marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Home of feel good. Of empathy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was very aware that um, my parents had done a huge amount for me and I wanted to start a career so that I could, you know, fund myself. So I quickly took on an internship and I did a very kind of fast paced marketing job in London, which I was terrible at. And I feel like the marketing um, campaigns that they wanted me to create were borderline racist. So I left very quickly. (laughs) Um, that's really interesting yeah. though mm. and again we cover it in the book like what do you do when mm. you're being asked to do something mm. that doesn't adhere yes. to your own values no. internally yeah. it's really hard and it happens it is. more often than you might think it's so hard and I again I, I'm not a person that draws on cliches but I think there are grains of truth in stereotypes and cliches and, and the phrase pick your battles is something that I think about now otherwise I'm just a terribly angry person all the time <laughs> Um, I think we all are at the moment. Well, you know, but I think, um, so it's not about picking your battles necessarily, and I don't want to contradict myself, but one will know when that is against your beliefs and your ethics and your values. Um, You know, it's, I knew that the marketing that I was doing there, and also it was soul-sappingly uncreative um and i'm exaggerating when i say that it was it was they were racist campaigns but they certainly didn't sit right with me um and wouldn't have sold the product anyway um <laughs> and I, I quickly left anyway I, I quickly left it was not the job for me and and it was interesting to to come to understand that um i didn't even really like the format of monday to friday i do that that's now. really interesting yeah. i do do that job now but um do though that kind of time i didn't like the monday to friday nine to five when i found shift work that for me was absolutely enlightening it my creative spark came back so quickly when I was doing um three days a week 12 hours doing a bit of night shifts I don't do that now but that the nature of a different work pattern that's really interesting yeah and I haven't kind of thought about that having been myself sort of either slavishly yes doing sort of well you know, mm. nine to five on paper, mm-hmm. eight to mm, exactly. eight on yeah. in reality, yeah, yeah. or working entirely on my own schedule. What I've I, I've never done that sort of yeah. a, a completely different version of it. And of course, yeah. it's a really different way of living. Like your the pattern of your uh, whole life changes. Yep. Sleeping, eating, seeing people. Wow. Yeah, but I. Um, but you found that really liberating. I found it really liberating, and I went for dinner with other nurses um, just recently, and we're all doing different roles now, even though we met in the same um, high dependency unit. And one of those nurses has gone to a Monday to Friday nine to five format, and she can't bear it. And she's going right back again <laughs> yeah. because there's something about it: um, flexibility, autonomy. Um, the break to the working week, even just being able to go into a into a kind of a shopping centre in the week and it's not jam-packed. There's something quite special about being active in the week, yeah, you know, I when other it. people are at work or the best feeling ever. It feels ever. a bit stealth. Like. Yeah, it does. <laughs> the best feeling ever is um, leaving the hospital at eight in the morning after a night shift and everybody is coming into work and you put your middle finger up like, see Ta-ha, you know, whole day to myself. Yeah, but obviously <laughs> you don't, you don't because you'd be fired probably, but... Um, <laughs> 
So that I learned that that was for me as well, even though it's I don't do it now, but that was for me. And that was a big learning curve that I wanted to go and do that. And so I missed the I missed the caring profession. I knew that I wanted to make a career out of it because if I'm completely honest, I couldn't have afforded to start saving for a house or do any of the things that I really wanted to pursue on on the, the wage that I'd, I'd previously been on. Um, so my sister, who was a great mentor really and was working as a midwife, said, well, why don't you try nursing? You know, a, a kind of more um, formal route into care. And um, so I applied for the nursing degree, was terribly nervous about it. I didn't have my maths GCSE. Um, because you know who needs that <laughs> you know it's really hard yeah actually. it's really hard but also I didn't like being bad at something so I I just shut the textbook I just didn't do that so I the learning curve from that is um I retook it as an adult and the real wow. the real learning curve for that is just as you said earlier about these massive decisions at the time so me not studying for my maths at the time it was it felt awful and the fact that I didn't get the grade that I needed you know it was expected that I didn't but it was it's awful I mean yeah. that's it shuts a lot of doors it feels like at the time and I genuinely believe that was not my time to get maths right. under my belt but was it really hard Rita because I mean if I had to retake any maths exam now I actually feel physically sick thinking about so did having I, to do it. It was, I can't it, imagine I know. gearing up that part of my brain, which I so I happily know. shut down. I don't have it anyway. Over. You know, I have a lot of self-confidence and I don't feel um, academically that, that I've struggled with many things, which I'm very lucky to feel. And I was terribly embarrassed about my, my lack of maths. And as you said, going back to it as an adult, um, the word is perhaps a bit theatrical, but was traumatic god yeah i can imagine was so traumatic but utterly um transforming transformative in the sense that i knew i needed it to get my get myself to this new this next place and there was something about coming at it as an adult where genuinely something clicked i understood so many things that so i hadn't understood that a fraction a percentage and a decimal were related. I didn't realise that. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it sounds like you just had a terrible teacher as I well. Just, uh, he yeah. must have done. Yeah, he was very red in the face. <laughs> very red uh, in the face. He was a very angry man. <laughs> he was. And, uh, you know, and I was a little bit naughty at school. You know, I have to take responsibility for it myself. I found myself... Um, eating lint balls in the back of Sainsbury's during maths lessons. I love a lint ball. So going back to maths, my point is that it feels horrendous at the time and I'm not saying that we shouldn't work for everything at school. Of course we should. But for me, that's not how it worked out. And I went back to it as an adult, got my maths and felt I could actually function as an adult in so many ways. When I go on holiday, I can actually work out the currency. Yeah, whereas you see, I can't. Isn't that funny? I scraped the, I scraped a pass or whatever it was. Mm. I think I scraped a C. I can't really remember. It's so traumatic. Mm, yeah. There was a sign on my maths teacher's wall, which I can remember it said, and it used to wind me up. I used to sit there looking at that sign, feeling like gritting my teeth. It said, be a somebody, S-U-M. Oh. And like, honestly, I could hurl thinking that. It was so <laughs> gross. And I didn't want to be a somebody. No, you don't. But isn't that funny? Like actually, so what it means is that I scraped that pass and I've got none of those skills yeah. to fall back on. And I feel And you more, did it later. Yeah. And now it actually is in a muscular way useful. Mm. And I, I think the point about that is, of course, give it your best shot. Of course. In, in the time allocated, of in course. the official time. But again, mm. you don't have to do everything in the mm -mm. order that everyone says you have to do the things no. in the order. And actually, sometimes mm. 
it's not just that there's no shame in a second chance. Mm. Sometimes the second chance is, is a better I chance. Completely agree with that. So I was thrilled to get into nursing and I did that for another three years because I didn't realise I could do it as a postgrad two years. But actually I was really pleased to do three years because it was this completely alien subject and, you know, I, it was three years was definitely what I needed to become the nurse that I am today. Um, and nurse, studying to be a nurse was a whole mix of really it was very very difficult it wasn't what I expected at all um spiritually financially academically in so many ways but my goodness am I glad I stuck it out um it's the most wonderful profession and I couldn't imagine not doing it there's so many different avenues that you can do in nursing it's not simply um ward nursing or there's so many different specialities and that was really exciting it felt like a passport to this whole career of doing these amazing things and also for somebody like me that can be a bit restless you can move from that to that to that and that's really exciting or you can take a break come back um but I started on a cardiac rotation so I got to look after people who had um disorders with their blood vessels or with their heart valves um or having heart attacks things like that and I found that really interesting in a kind of um literary rotation romanticized way I've always loved the heart and what it means and things like that and so that was really um I found it really inspiring to to work closely with conditions of the heart and um I did that for a really long time and then I moved to intensive care and intensive care was a place I'm sure people have had experiences with loved ones in intensive care and it's it's a very different place and for me as a person that likes to talk to people and hear their stories you're often looking after people that are in induced comas or, you know, uh, things like that, the brain injuries that can't communicate. And also people that are really um, desperate, desperately unwell. And I couldn't handle that. I right. found that I needed to know that um, not, all, not almost that people would get better, but that I could see that what I was doing was having an impact. And that sounds as if I'm diminishing what these incredible skilled intensive care nurses do because everything they do from brushing that person's of teeth course. makes a difference of but course. for me it was really upsetting and I couldn't I found um I also found from a technical point of view that I was pushing a lot of buttons and not doing what I was doing before which was um more human interactions I just felt because intensive care is so specialist this person was so reliant on kind of multi-organ support so I quickly thought to myself I need a new job this is definitely not for me I need to find people that I can talk to um get me out of here (laughs) so I started look on the job um websites for for the NHS and this is this is what I find this is quite a relatively new job almost a, a year in this is something that I know when I look back um in my titanic old era days I will think that this was a good bold move and something that I should impart to other people um there was a job that was about two grades above my own um, level in nursing. Um, not a job really I should be setting my sights on because mm-hmm. when I read the job description, I was missing quite a few aspects of, of what they wanted. Um, but it looked great. It looked so cool. It looked, and I thought, do you know what? I know I haven't got all of those on the job description, but I think I could be really good at that. And I feel like I was at a place where I was not enjoying my job enough. Um, I felt assured enough in how I come across and also nothing to lose, absolutely nothing to lose to apply for that job. So I applied for that job um, 
with the best kind of personal statement I could. Hey, look at me. <laughs> don't look at the detail. Don't look at the CV, but look at me. I had a photo of my face. No, it didn't. It definitely didn't. That would not get me the job. Um, and I went on holiday and they called me for an interview. And they wanted me to do a kind of 15-minute presentation about this very specialist subject. Um, so I basically sat in the hotel room on the holiday and again, networking, whatever word we're using, you know, finding people, in particular on Twitter, that were specialists in the mm-hmm. field. Brilliant. Um, and asking them, help me, <laughs> I want this job, um, for advice. And I, I guess I swatted because you kind of interviews are this slightly artificial of course, splurge yeah. of, you know, why you're so good in your knowledge. Um, and I went along to this interview, very nervous, but also slightly empowered by the feeling of, I have nothing to lose here. No, and the fact that they've called the it, you they've in called me for an is a massive endorsement already. I know. It's weird, isn't it? Because it's it takes, as you say, it was a gutsy decision mm. to apply. But mm. then weirdly, by being called in, yeah. you then have gained, yeah. you know, even if you don't get the job at that point, yeah. you know that there was something in there exactly. that appealed. Yeah. And that's a really, so, so to do something out of your comfort zone then gives you a confidence, even if the end result isn't I know. what you want. Exactly. And I think interview... And processes are are actually quite valuable because you get a real muscle memory from that fear, totally, don't you? It's yeah. a bit like performing poems on stage. Yeah. It's a muscle memory because you've been so scared. Yeah. Um, so I did. I set up this for this presentation, and the laptop crashed. Um, all of the things that are meant to happen in an interview, and it was it was a brilliant interview, and it was great. And I loved preparing the presentation. I knew even more after preparing that that I wanted to do the job. And they rang and said, yeah, we'd like to offer you that job. And my mum always said to me, if you get offered a job, you you mustn't say, and I don't know if this is real good <laughs> advice, but this is what my mum says. She says, you mustn't say, can I think about it? You have to say yes or no. I don't know why. <laughs> and so I was like, um, 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 can I think about it? And I, I, because I just didn't expect to get the job. You were really shocked. I was so shocked. So I, I, thought about it um because i was because i was doing this dual job as a writer i wasn't sure if kind of now signing up for a a monday to friday nine to five job would mean that i could no longer write and things like that so you needed to obviously assess the landscape of what that would look like and i hadn't done that really before because i just didn't think i was going to get the job which i and i did and anyway i took on the, the the job and i now work as a clinical nurse specialist for inherited cardiac conditions which is not catchy at all. It's a posh title. I know, it's too long, the (laughs) title. Um, An ICCCNS is what I am. Um, And it is the most diverse job. So I still work within cardiology, looking after people's hearts. But there's so many different strands to what I do now. So I, and I get to look after people, I feel when they're going through something that is probably the most traumatic thing they could be going through. So they've lost somebody terribly suddenly through a sudden a sudden death that's affected their heart, we think, in some way. And their first port of call is, um, after, after this person has died, is often they're recommended that they need to get themselves screened to see if of there's course. an inherited nature to what's happened to their loved one. So they arrive at our doors um, with so much going on in their psychology that they're bereaved, that they may have a genetic mutation that... And I say this that they've passed on. Of course, nobody consciously passes on their their you know their genetic mutations. Um, there's so much psychology behind it, and I get to be there. That person, the the first person really that they they kind of meet within this clinic, 
to to guide them through it to have to guide them through these very invasive cardiac investigations what they mean terrifying moment so terrifying. on top of as you say already being bereaved trauma and- i know and what the outcome for them means if we find a diagnosis because it's something for a lot of families they want to know what happened to their loved one yeah. but they will find if they if we find out what happened to their loved one it's often at the expense of a diagnosis in themselves i think something that i learned very quickly through um becoming a carer and then becoming a nurse is the importance of touch and I think that that can transcend to not just the nursing the caring profession I think it's such an important skill to learn and I learned it in a very formal way because um, I went into the caring profession but obviously we day to day we touch our loved ones you know it's that's completely normal and comfortable for us but actually the notion of extending our touch to a stranger is you know abnormal and weird and it's you get nervous whether it's a handshake or a hand on the shoulder and I think learning to um, recognize when somebody is comfortable with your touch especially looking after people with Alzheimer's where they're terribly a lot of it kind of manifests in a really tactile way so they respond so well to touch and learning that very quickly was was hugely important um, and has taught me a lot um, going forward now into my into my role, which is slightly less clinical. So now that I'm no longer on the wards, um, I do a lot of nursing assessments and kind of um, the start of the, the nursing patient journey on the phone. And that can be quite cold, I guess, in a way. It's not, you're not reading people's body language or how they're responding to you. There's no notion of a warm touch or anything like that. And I think then it starts to cross over into the tones we use and the language we use. And I'm, I'm so glad we've spoken so much about language language because I'm a, I always bang on about the language we use and was recently on a, a panel talking about um, the NHS crisis and how I think the word crisis is completely wrong and the person thought I was saying there wasn't an NHS crisis oh. I was saying no it's about syntax <laughs> it's about the language that we choose to use um, and I think that that crosses over into the phone conversations I have with people so I am picking up the phone and dialing a family who have recently lost someone incredibly suddenly um and unexpectedly and this person it's it's a really difficult phone call to make and I get very nervous about it um, but in, in a good way in a, in a productive way I think and it's um, you learn from how that person is speaking to you on the phone how to set your tone the words to use so almost whether you start slightly more formally if that person has kind of intonated that they weren't aware that you were about to call, maybe you say, hello, is that Mr. Brown? And they go, yes, sound a bit worried. Or, you know, the, the intonation goes up. You might say, hello, sir. It's or it's, And I think that's, I think all these nonverbal cues um, that stem maybe from from touch or things like that are so important. And, and you only learn that really through doing a really, a real range of jobs and mm. meeting people people from a really diverse um different places i think it's important and even in something like nursing where it's so essential to whether you are good at this or not it's presumably not taught in a really formal Mm. way you know Mm. we tone is something Mm. (laughs) being able to read somebody else's Mm. cues and Mm. take the cues from them to give them time to come to terms with the fact that the conversation is happening now and it may contain yeah you know bad news yeah, or yeah. You know, all of that stuff you can't really learn that in a classroom no I agree and in fact 
I remember there was a module called Breaking Bad News, and I—it's—I mean, it's not—I—I I don't remember what the contents right. of that were because, as you said, and I think when you find somebody, as with any job that you go into, it when you find somebody that does that well, um, the mo—it's—it's—it's it's, it's like the moment I understood what a good death meant because that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't right. it? A good death and how important when I saw somebody die well, i.e., with all their choices, they're dignified, surrounded by family, without pain, and it wasn't sad, and that was a good death for that person. Mm. And then you see the opposite of that. I think it's like when you've seen that happen, um, it's only when you see it in, in practice. Yeah. That I mean, no pre- presentation is going to prepare no. you for the contrast in those experiences. No. no, and that's a long way from the sort of cultural shorthand mm. we have when we think about mm. what a nurse looks like, what a yeah. nurse is doing. Yeah. You know, making beds and yes. and we and it's you know mm. of course. We know that it's a much more complex day-to-day. But I think what is really interesting Mm. is that within nursing, you know, the job you've just described is not a visible job necessarily unless you've had direct experience of that um, from the outside. And Mm. so it's really important, even just knowing that you can, Mm. within your experience, have, uh, have a job or a role in an environment and think Mm. this is not for me. I can't do, you know, this, this doesn't work. That's right. But I'm fascinated by, by this, this. Yeah. and that they all exist those I options know. I think that's all under one roof it's exactly. amazing and of course an, another amazing thing about the NHS and I think that is exactly that's exactly right people don't necessarily know that and I'm a real advocate for nursing because again it wasn't my my calling I kind of came into it a little bit later through an unusual route and exactly like you said I would say to anyone to have a look at nursing because the, it, it's this passport to this kind of other world of you know, prison nursing, school nursing, right. all these different things. Um, you can leave it and come back to it. And for me, I don't think I could ever be a, a surgical theatre nurse. It's far too cold down there. It's, you have to stand <laughs> on your feet for ages. I'm kind of lazy. Um, <laughs> but I don't ever have to do that. No. Yeah, and as you continue to find specialism after specialism mm, and refining that, yeah. that's all the more joyful but it still starts from the same position of wanting to help people exactly sometimes people ask me why I wrote my memoir split into five parts because I split it into the very um, systematic nursing examination of a patient which is a b c d e airway breathing circulation disability exposure and it's a very objective assessment of a person and people said if you're writing creatively and you're writing about you know the holistic assessment of that person why did you use this very dry systematic objective head-to-toe assessment and I actually found having this um ABCDE assessment was this incredible um, exploration of the person that was now presented to me in the hospital bed Um, it was an opportunity to learn how they'd come to be there in front of me like that in this way with all their body system bodily systems and also the stories that they had um it was a way of me to to kind of explore every element of them every aspect of them not just clinically for instance in um in the middle section in circulation um i talk a lot about touch because so much of nursing is based on um palpating the skin and feeling whether blood is flowing whether the skin is warm how the pulse feels beneath the skin is it is it thread thready or is it bounding there's so much clinically about touch but as you said you learn so much more not just about you know perfusion of the body but 
how that person has come to be. I've never really thought about the complexity of breathing before. Mm, and as soon mm. as you break it down, yeah. you sort of realise what an incredible thing remaining alive is yeah. every mm. day. Yeah. And and I think that's what's so extraordinary about anyone who does a job that is on the front line mm. like that is mm. that it's a really, and to choose to work in that environment is to me, to someone from the outside, mm. is, is such a brave decision mm. because every day you are choosing to encounter yeah. those yeah. Th- that fragility. Sure. And f- f- I find that terrifying. Like mm. I'm happy at the colouring in and the yeah. ribbons end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I equally understand and hearing you talk about it mm. that sense of fulfilment is Definitely. like no other I That's think. Right. Um, you are of course a brilliant spokesperson for Thanks. an army of talent in the NHS and oh, that's nice. so important and it's one of the reasons I'm delighted to be talking to you today nice. and one of the things that I want to make sure that we cover is the way you do more than effectively more than one job Mm, and that of course is becoming increasingly common Mm. but in your case it's really nice because they are not necessarily things that we think of as coexisting can you tell me a bit about how Mm. obviously from the beginning you have always written and that was always an ambition but how did you start Mm. and at what point did you realize you could do both Mm. yeah I think um literally the pivotal moment was as you said 2013 when I stood up at the Royal College of Nursing with this little poem little limerick it wasn't a limerick actually a little poem it's quite a big poem yeah it's a big poem it's not a limerick dirty limerick <laughs> um that I had written and I had I'd written that poem because I write poetry it was a knee-jerk response to feeling fiercely protective of my colleagues who were so much fun and so kind and the media was presenting us all uh, us nurses as kind of really demonic and it was so not true and and this knee-jerk kind of I guess pseudo-political poem really but you know came out and um I was invited to perform it at this congress which I didn't know what congress was it sounded like um the roll doll the witches where all the <laughs> where all the uh, witches oh, come together and take their wigs yes. off I, it's, which I love but it wasn't that um and it turned out to be 5,000 healthcare professionals in a like Bruce Springsteen stadium I was like whoa um and there was me about to perform this poem couldn't believe it so glad that I didn't realize it was going to be that and obviously was terribly nervous and when I watched that poem back now Gosh, I didn't look nervous at all no. when I performed it, um, but I was. And, and that was the moment that the reaction to that poem and how it resonated, because I was just simply saying what everybody was thinking, but in a medium that was really powerful mm. and that worked and that was um, really kind of emphasised the emotion that we were all feeling and it rhymed, which is always good. Um, <laughs> I think the moment that that, that that started kind of gathering momentum and I was invited to various things to perform again I thought wow I can make a career out of both of these and how great is this platform as a nurse um to be able to to share my writing and obviously I was so incredibly inspired by the people I was meeting along the way anyway that it became very organic and now that time has passed and I've obviously got a, a book um out about my experiences as a nurse and as a daughter looking after my dad who became unwell um it just feels as I said organic that these two professions have come together so do they even feel like two things in your head they actually do no they do they actually do in some ways because when I'm at work as a nurse um I'm people sometimes ask me that when I'm at work as a nurse I'm not kind of sitting there twiddling my pen going there's a a poem (laughs) in that there's a poem in that I really um 
I, I'm not. And then the moment I leave, um, so for instance, this evening, because I'm, I'm writing something new now, I, I'll go into that space. I've always kept them quite separate in the logistics day to day. And it's and I think that's also just how how I craft my, my creative writing as well. Things, um, maybe I'm just slow, but things have to sit for a while. So maybe something somebody has said to me at work, um, a patient has said something, I'll retain it and then it will come to me later. So they are separate, but I guess, of course, they're intrinsically intertwined in a more like subliminal way. I and know. I guess one couldn't exist without no the other. Way. Or rather, it would exist, but in a really different... Exactly. In really different territory. Definitely. Perhaps. Which isn't to say that you can't do that too, of course. But yeah. at the yeah, moment, yeah. it's really... Because yeah. I think it's really fascinating. In, the book, in our book, we talk about it that... It's very fashionable at the moment to have, and I hate, again, I hate this language. It just sounds like I hate all, all language. <laughs> but, you know, like mute. a side hustle, you know. And, oh, right, and the yeah. reason I hate that is because it sounds like there's a hierarchy between yeah. the things. Like you go home yeah. and you sell lemonade on your lawn. Yeah. And it's like, that's obviously bollocks. Mm. Um, what's, what I think is really interesting is the idea of doing two very mm. different things that benefit each other, mm. even in ways that aren't necessarily super obvious. Um, Symbiotic. But, yeah, yeah, and yours is, I think, the most kind mm. of elegant example of that because they just... Mm. And I think if you can find that, I mean, that's just the... Mm. It's got to be the, ho- the holy grail of yeah. being fulfilled in one way lucky. in one environment yeah. and fulfilled in another way in yes. another environment. I think it feels really, really lucky. And and uh, Rob, my husband, kind of says, it's not luck, you've worked really right. hard. Yeah. And it, of course, I, but I also understand that I've come from a real place of privilege that I've been allowed to kind of have all these opportunities and have an education and things like that. And that, you know, there is, of course, an element of working hard, but also how you've been set up in life. Of course. I, I acknowledge that. Um, but I think... Um, yeah, it does feel terribly lucky. And people sometimes say, oh gosh, well, you're not going to do nursing now for another um, 40 years or whatever. And and I actually, there, there's there's not an answer for that. I think the joy of nursing is that you can do it for a bit and, and come back. But also, like you said, there is no hierarchy. At the moment, um, or certainly when I was writing How to Treat People, that took priority. So I did a few less shifts at the time. Now I'm trying to get much better at this job, uh, the inherited cardiac conditions. So that's taking priority. Mm. And it's just... And again, that's that ebb and flow yeah. is totally fine, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. But it does, importantly, it does stop you ever feeling like you are in this one space Definitely. doing this one thing. Yeah. There are parts of every job, mm. regardless of how exciting it seems from the outside or how glamorous or mm. how challenging mm. that are just a bit drudgy yeah. like that's just the, definitely. the truth there's yeah. not a single job that doesn't have that bit in definitely. it and so the problem with being only doing that job is that sometimes your drudge can seem to take yeah. too much of your too day drug, or too, too much drudge. yeah whereas if you have more than one thing going I on mm. i think you always have more of a balance just because you have to manage your time better. definitely yeah i completely agree um the performing part of your job is there a crossover are there skills that you draw upon to perform a poem in front mm. of a big room of people which is obviously terrifying mm. um is there anything is, is yeah. there's something to me quite performative about nursing yeah. it, it's or maybe perhaps more yeah of the hospital as a stage yeah. feels like there's a yeah, connection well that's, there's two parts of, to answer that i guess i think so I hear now, um, <laughs> makes me sound ancient, but that there's a big emphasis on making sure students kind of engage in public speaking activities. That's not something really when I was at school that was a thing, um, except for when, you know, you have to read aloud and it comes to your turn and you're like, <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> dread, no, yeah. that's awful. And um, again, I would never necessarily place emphasis on that, on public speaking, that that's an important thing. But now that I've 
been doing that for such a long time. And colleagues that I work with are absolutely clammed up with fear when they have to simply present something in a meeting or, you know, um, do a presentation. And for me, I mean, I get nervous, get terribly nervous to the point where, you know, I'm flushed or, but it's just second nature now. Mm. So I think um, the performative aspect of doing spoken word poetry for um, a decade now I'm I'm so glad I pat my pat my past self on the back because <laughs> definitely that has been so helpful to getting this job to I train other nurses now and my colleague said oh no you can do that you can do that because you don't mind public speaking as it were and I think it's a, I really genuinely think it's an amazing skill to have um and the I love the all the world's a stage thing that you that you alluded to there so when I um have talked to other nurses about the the job that I'm doing now. Um, we have these big clinics, kind of. I've, I run two a week, really big clinics where there's a lot of patients coming along. And I, the the metaphor I use is that it's like um, a theatre show, mm. and that's not to diminish, you know, or say that we've got masks and different faces on or anything like that. But the preparation that you have to do in before you meet the person and kind of acquiring all their information and their their family tree and things like that it's almost like learning not a script because that sounds as if I'm, mm. you know, being false. Um, there's so much preparation that goes into it. And then the big day is here for yeah. these, this bereaved family. And for me, again, it's, it's not quite the right metaphor because I'm not the director of the show in any sense. But for me, that's kind of orchestrating that this day goes right. The, res- the, the nerves I feel that everything's going to fall into place for this show to work for these people. Um, there is a performative aspect there. And I, I did once read a study about the nature of face and the faces that we that we put on um, when it comes to what, the different roles that we play in our lives. And I think that there is something in that. There is an element of, of performance and there's a backstage and a front stage. Yeah. And especially with your, your own mental health in the health care profession that as we know there's I think 40,000 nurses have left the profession really really recently just because they're completely burnt out they haven't been able to look after their own mental health because of you know the current climate and I think um, for nurses having that element of backstage and front stage there there absolutely is and there has to be um, a kind of a place where nurses and healthcare professionals can can offload their own kind of emotional um the intensity of their days, really. I think a lot of that is get, is at risk of getting lost mm. in a separate conversation, which is about mm. authenticity at work and being your whole self at work. Mm. And obviously those are really good ideas. Yeah. But there is a risk with that, mm. that you feel that you have to be your whole entire self in every yeah. conversation yeah. through every part of your day. Yeah. And that's not actually true. And it's also no. exhausting. Absolutely. So in a sense, I think... We, we talk about those things because we want to take the pressure off people having to be yes. people that they're not at work. Yeah. And of course, that's super important. But I always think it's worth also saying it's absolutely okay to hold something back. Yes. Um, yeah. You don't have to show everybody everything. No. You can no. have, a, this is my professional persona yeah. and this is where it begins and I ends. I agree. Yeah, and, and I think that's become unfashionable as an mm. idea now because mm. because of rightly the emphasis on us being able authentic. to be honest and authentic. No, I completely But there agree. is a danger that I think we're perhaps not talking about, which yeah. is that it's okay. You can be two slightly different And it's still yourself. People. It's still yourself. It's just a, a, whether it's a polished yeah. up version of yourself yeah. or a slightly distant version of yourself. Yes. You know, for me, I think... That I wouldn't want that to be lost as an option. Yeah, I think that's really important. It. I completely agree. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? 
I think the point that I made about um, perspective and catastrophizing has been really important for me. Um, I was a real worrier as a, as a young person and I still do worry about things, but I think coming to understand um, that, as you said, that it's not necessarily the absolute end of everything and that there's always going to be an outcome that you can make something from. I also think um, a kind of very well-known type of phrase that you can change, you can't change somebody else's behaviours, but you can change the way you respond to it. I hold that very, very dear to my heart because certainly working in the nursing profession where, you you know, it's difficult and the training was very difficult and you wondered why people were responding to you in that way. And I guess in, in kind of day-to-day job stresses, sometimes you can spend so much time stressing about why that person is treating you in that way. And I used to agonise over it. Yeah, I do too. I'm terrible at it. Well, I'm now really good at it. Tell me how. Honestly, it's that. I think it's a cognitive behaviour therapy thing. And I haven't had CBT, but I know it's very useful to a lot of people. And that, to me, I'm so good at that now. I love that you're so good at it. I'm so good at that, at the feeling of, okay, that person is terribly irritating and I actually can't bear them, but... How I respond to them is the only thing I can influence. And that, I promise you, that works every time. I'm so giving that a whirl this week. Because what I would tend to do is instead absolutely agonise over my own Mm -mm. shortcomings in relation to how this person doesn't like me. And then I would like a performing monkey, make it, I would change all my plans in order to be liked by that person. In a way that is a complete fucking waste of time. No, this then take my nugget. (laughs) Take my nugget. I'll have it. Be be reflective, be kind, feel that you have done the best you can absolutely do and you you are being the best version of yourself you can be. And then take that smack that person around the face with that and be like well do you know what mate I am the best version of myself I'm being good I'm being kind um, and so therefore I think the problem lies with you brilliant it's so important in work though because you know everything it's it, people who say you know business isn't personal or work it, you know, of course it's personal you're having conversations with people day in day out mm-hmm. so you are going to encounter people who mm. don't like you very much yeah. or who yeah. who rub you up the wrong way yeah. or you have a personality clash For sure. and yes it's a complete waste of time to assume mm. that the fault lies with you all the so time much, honestly I feel really very close to my all the awful things about me that I'm impatient I'm moody you know I know all that about myself that's boring so I can recognize that in myself and if and I understand how I might come across to somebody but that for me Gosh, the amount of hours I've got back, Time, yeah, back now that I don't do that. I don't agonise at all about that anymore. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you've given to a young person recently? I think the best piece of advice would be an understanding that nothing is set in stone in any way. I think the point you made about those massive life feeling like they're life-changing decisions that you have to make early on and they are terribly important decisions but they are not set in stone forever I had no inkling that I was going to go into nursing at all it was perhaps my plan b plan a was going to be my nursing and lo and behold how lucky I was that everything fell into place obviously through hard work as well and both of these plans became my plan a and I'm now able to symbiotically um do them both and how it's just fab so nothing is set in stone and plan a plan b plan c plan d you know we just go on and on and on (laughs) 
Molly Case, thank you for this conversation. I have been smiling from the moment we started. Thank you for being part of this project. And if you're listening and you enjoyed all this, don't forget that the book, How to Go to Work, is published by Penguin. The link's in our show notes. So if you're interested in further reading, do check that out. There's also links to Molly's book, How to Treat People, a Nurse at Work, and to the performance of her poem that we mentioned in the show. Please subscribe and review this episode. It really helps new listeners find us. And if you know someone who's making decisions about who and what they want to be as they enter the world of work, do recommend this project. We're all doing it because we really think we can help people feel more confident and more prepared by sharing the essential advice that no one tells you as you start your career. Thank you for listening and thank you to Mark, our editor. Join me, Lucy Clayton, next time for another honest and unvarnished conversation about how to go to work.